Welcome to another episode of Radio Silence, where we are bringing science into focus for the next approximately an hour. Today's episode, we are looking at debunked science or disproven science, science that the world used to believe until a better theory came along or someone disproved it. Um, So... Let's first introduce myself. Hello, I'm Ailish. I'm studying a Master of Environment. I'm joined by Kate and Kai. Say hi, everyone. Hi, everyone. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I thought, I thought that we would start off by talking about um, something that we used to think was true. For me, um, it, it was embarrassingly late in life that I realized <laughs> that deoxygenated blood isn't blue. Because in diagrams, they always draw oxygenated blood is red and deoxygenated blood is blue. So I thought, I thought that we would, you, you'd never see yourself bleed, bleed blue because by the time it hits you're bleeding, the air, it hits the air, it would get oxygenated, <laughs> and like it looks blue when you look at it in your wrist, right? So I just fully, yeah, I, I was, I don't even want to say how old when I realized that that was not true. Um, and I know there's a few sneaky listeners out there that also believe that I've talked to people <laughs> and they've been like, wait, mm. it's not. So I know it's ju- not just me. Um, that's why I feel, I feel comfortable outing myself. Um, Kai, welcome to the episode. What's your, what, what did you used to believe as a youngster or maybe an adult? Um, sorry. Yeah, mine is definitely as a youngster when when I was a little kid in our bathroom we had like big square white and black tiles in like a checkerboard pattern and I like for a little while seriously believed that if I stood on the black ones like I would fall through. <laughs> what? Like the black tiles weren't tiles they were just like oh. gaps into this into like, the void. Bottomless pit beneath. Yeah, that wow. That's how I the love... color black works. That's bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love your imagination as a kid. Yeah, That's but amazing. I think I think the reason that I believe this was because the dog we had at the time also believed this and like actively avoided mm. stepping on the black tiles. Amazing. So did you never see like anyone walk onto the black tiles? Like, did you see your parents step on the black tiles? Uh, I'm, look, I must have, but I don't know. Like my maybe child you get brain super was adult going, powers. You know, yeah, you... adults. Maybe their feet are bigger and they can like stand on the white bits and, and not True. fall through. So would you never stand on them or would you just kind of stand on them really briefly? Um, I would like, look, I think I stood on them, but I was all, there was always this anxiety that like I could fall through at any time. Yeah, terrifying. Sorry, <laughs> brushing your teeth. Yeah, no, nah, most scary part of my day. Anyway, Kate, what about you? Yeah, so mine's not nearly as embarrassing as either of yours, so sorry to throw you both under the bus. No, but um, (laughs) yes, I'm Kate, um, and I, for a very long time, used to think that the word swear word was actually square word, and so square words (laughs) were the forbidden words that you weren't allowed to say, because Mm. I, I... I blame my grandmother and I swear she taught me that it was square words, but maybe I misheard her and just continued to believe it for a very long time. But I remember learning. I remember sitting outside doing a crossword with her, actually, and, you know, her telling me about square words and that they're bad. And I was like, of course, that makes sense, because normally they're four letters, right? 
Oh, and so oh. they're falling yeah. apart. So they make a square. So there is... It Logic. makes sense. <laughs> yep. um, and I was a lot older than I would care to believe when I learned that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is a square word, Kate? You're insane. And so now yes. that I think of it, they really, most of them are full letters. Yeah. 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 Huh. Most of them. Not all. But yeah, for, for a while as a kid. <laughs> Should we make a list? Or, no. That, um. uh, not on air. Probably not. We'll avoid it. <laughs> um, it's in my head. Anyway, uh, well. Before we move on to the news segment, I will remind everyone to follow us on Twitter at Radio Silence. And also, we do have a SoundCloud, Radio Silence, on SoundCloud, where you can listen to this episode at any other time of day other than now. Or our so, past, a couple of our past episodes. If you're you know, catching yeah. us this week for the first time and you want to hear some of our past business, it's up there. They're there for a limited time, but yeah, there's a little backlog there. So highly recommend checking that one out. And let's start off with the new segment. So Kai, what is going on in the world of science at the moment? Okay. So there's a fair bit of interest in science for exploring the deepest parts of the ocean, but this Mm -hmm. is actually quite difficult due to the immense water pressure like deep down there the deepest part of the ocean is about 11 kilometers deep and if you've got 11 kilometers of water on top of you it's gonna press down pretty hard yeah so to actually do you know science or exploration down at these depths you need to use really strong materials and conventionally that's what what people have been doing they've been building really tough materials that are able to withstand this pressure otherwise they would just snap but Interestingly, and some scientists have noticed this, that most of the animals that live at such extreme depths aren't really hard. Mm. Most of them are actually really soft, like oh. super squishy, blobby fish looking things. And, yeah. Like the, exactly. like the literal blobfish. The literal, the literal blobfish. blobfish. <laughs> and the reason that they, these animals have evolved to be so squishy is because it allows the pressure to be spread out over a larger area and therefore is is not as intense mm, at any, any given spot. Because what would happen with uh, like conventional materials is that they would snap at like joins and, and things that were they were a little bit weaker mm. because the pressure, you know, like would crush them. So some researchers from China have developed a soft robot that can survive at the deepest depths of the ocean. And I want to squish it. <laughs> they're, they're, what they're doing is they're actually mimicking the Hadal snailfish, which is actually one of the deepest known fish in the ocean that you know lives at least deeper than eight kilometers. Oh wow! And this is, is a squishy fish. And the the <laughs> researchers that have made this robot have have made uh, made it with a soft body out of, of silicon. And they've distributed all of the electronics inside all throughout its body. So rather than having like a, a central brain, that like the brain of the robot is spread out all throughout mm, it. Cool. Kind of and like a plant. Yeah, yeah. Mm. But also also kind of like this snailfish as well. Its, its brain is kind of spread out a little bit rather than having it all in, in one spot. Interesting. And also to further mimic this, this fish... The robot has like flapping fins for swimming around rather than like a propeller <laughs> you'd normally have on like a submarine or something. It's Love actually it. got like flapping fins. And, Amazing. And you can watch a video of it and it just sort of like flaps its way through the water. It looks pretty cool. Interesting. 
That reminds me, speaking of the blobfish, which we know because it looks like this big, ugly blob, right? <laughs> You've yep. probably seen They're a photo of it. They're real cute. Well, it's from, it's from really deep in the ocean. So the reason it looks like a blob is because it no longer has that pressure. So it's, it's actually a fairly normal-looking fish down in the depths. Mm. But the way we've seen it is just, you know, it, its body has not reacted well to the lack of pressure. So it looks <laughs> like a blob, but that's not actually how they look like down in the ocean, which I think is quite interesting. Oh, right. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And also suddenly those images of the blobfish are not quite as endearing as they once were. No, um, I now feel guilty. Uh, Sorry, Blobfish. Yeah, not great. Yeah. Um, Kate, what about in your corner of science? What have you found? So my corner of science has found <laughs> the missing piece of a 350-year-old puzzle. Wow. So okay. the puzzle Do tell. of how the pointed body parts of many animals grow to form their shapes. So I'm talking things like teeth, horns, claws, beaks... You know, okay. even even like the thorns and prickles of plants, right? We all know they all have this kind of claw shape, thorn shape, yeah, you know, a yeah. very specific horn like shape, right? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, for a while, like, we, we haven't known why everything seems to grow in this same shape. But mm. a team, an interdisciplinary team from Monash University has recently just discovered a new uni- universal rule of biological growth that explains these similarities in the shapes of these sharp structures across, you know, all of those different, you know, things that I've already listed. So animals and plants, we know often grow in specific patterns, right? Like everyone's heard of the golden ratio, which is a logarithmic spiral, right? Like a nautilus shell. Yeah. Or even a, even a hurricane sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And so, like this is a logarithmic spiral essentially grows when one side of the structure grows faster than the other at a very constant ratio. And so we call this a universal rule of growth and it helps us understand why these spirals exist in nature. So this, this new study has found the, a new rule called the power cascade, which I, I just oh, love that. That's love a great it. name. When you're talking about teeth, yes. you're talking about claws, you're talking about horns. Of course you want a power cascade. The power cascade. Um, and it's based on how the shape cascades down a tooth following a power law. So mm. when an elephant tusk, for example, like grows longer, it grows wider at a very specific rate following this power law which a power law is just a mathematical pattern where there's a relationship between the tooth's width and the tooth's length and that's once again a logarithmic um relationship right and so power laws are found everywhere in nature such as in like when we're talking about magnitude of earthquakes right that when we talk about different levels of earthquake that's a logarithmic scale in the way that Mm. increases that's not a linear you know, scale and sizes of cities, movement of the stock market. We use these kind of power laws all the time. And so they found that, yeah, this pattern applies across so many animals, the teeth of giant sharks, Tyrannosaurus rex, mammoths, and even humans. Um, Remarkably, this law works for claws, hooves, horns, spider fangs, some oh. snail shells, antlers, and the beaks of mammals, birds, and dinosaurs. Um, and Wait, so are this... you saying that they're all the same shape? Or it's just a s- the same ratio? 
it's it's a mathematical way of explaining the shape. Cool. So yeah, it's a ratio okay. between the height and the width that is at a certain logarithmic function, and that is a mathematical yeah. way of describing the shape. And it's a ratio to do mm. with how it starts wide wow. and kind of curves into this shape. So we've we've just managed to mathematically explain this shape and found it in all of these different things and beyond animals they also observed wow. it in the thorns of the rose bush and the lemon tree so yeah incredible i just like never would have thought that those things have a relationship that's incredible yeah. that they're all connected and the fact that so yeah they call it a, they're calling it you know a 350 year old puzzle because essentially back in 1659, Sir Christopher Wren, who, side note, would happen to be the designer of London's St. Paul's Cathedral, if you've ever been there, stunning <laughs> cathedral. Anyway, in, nine, in 1659, Wren suggested that the snail shell could be a cone twisted into a logarithmic spiral. And so we kind of figured out that golden ratio spiral mm. back then. But then we hadn't figured out the, the power cascade, the power cone, as they're mm. calling it, for teeth and horns and thorns. Um, and yeah, the, it, the, the coolest part of all of this, I think, um, and this is a direct quote from the, the lead author of this study, Associate Professor Evans. He says, because so many structures follow this growth pattern, we can use it to predict likely patterns of evolution. When animals evolve teeth, horns, or claws, it seems likely that they will take this shape. It can even allow us to predict what mythical animals would look like if they follow the same patterns of nature. (laughs) So now we can know what dragons from Game of Thrones and fantastic beasts from Harry Potter would look like. So thank you, Associate Professor Evans and colleagues from Monash University. We can now scientifically draw a dragon. That's all I'm saying. Um, And I love it. Let's not forget about unicorns either. Oh, exactly. Also that. Sorry, are you saying unicorns aren't real? Of course not. <laughs> of course not. I I just myself haven't seen one, but that means nothing. Um, <laughs> hasn't been disproven. Speaking of, <laughs> um, before Speaking we launch of. into our next segment, oh yeah, that was a good one. Oh, disproven science. Um, let's let's <laughs> let's get a song up in these airwaves. Um, this is Past Life by Tame Impala. That was Past Life by Tame Impala. You are listening to Radio Silence here on Radio Fodder, bringing science into focus. And Past Life was a very fitting song because today we are talking about science of the past, past lives of past scientists. We're talking debunked science today, all fun things that are no longer really held with the same level of respect as they were back in the day. Kai... Start us off. What have you got? So, Kate, today I'm going to be talking about geocentrism, which I, was yep. okay. the idea that the Earth was the center of the universe. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, this was this was like the scientific consensus for a very long time. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, guess. makes sense as far <laughs> as you know. We're clearly the most important. Obviously, <laughs> like human. Arrogance knows no bounds. It's true. Um, Yeah, so since people started thinking about, you know, the universe and what 
life and like everything. What is what is Earth? What is our place in everything? Mm. People thought, yep, obviously Earth is at the center of it all. Yeah. You know. But over the time, there's been various different uh, models that have come along that, you know, have tried to explain observations that people have made, uh, like doing astronomy. And sometimes the models that they had didn't really fit with observations. Mm -hmm. And the history of, of geocentrism really is like just a history of the scientific method that just shows you exactly how science is supposed to happen. Yeah. You know, people come up with a, with an idea, they, they try and make a prediction and they want to test their model and maybe the, the prediction is correct and they can go, yeah, we've got pretty good confidence in this model. Or often when there's big changes in science, the prediction isn't quite right. And they go, hmm, that's a bit interesting. Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe something else is going on here that we, we don't realise. And, yeah, that is definitely the case for geocentrism. So, you know, for a long time, different, um, like, ancient Greek philosophers and that sort of, you know, character back, like, thousands of years ago, they all thought that the Earth was at the centre of it all. And they came up with some various different, sometimes really wacky models of how the universe mm. actually worked. Like what? And, <laughs> oh, like some of them, you know, that that it's like a giant, you know, the sky is like a giant machine, you know, moving this sort of like a sphere with yeah. little holes in it that are oh. all like the stars and stuff. And on the outside the sphere, there's just this, you know, massive like swirling flame world of fire or something. And all we're seeing is it. like little pinpricks of fire coming through the holes in the spheres. It's like... Yeah, they, they really thought about this. That's, you um, know, that I mean, like, that's a fair enough assumption based on if you were to walk outside and look up at the sky and have no other kind of all the other stuff that we know now, if you, if you didn't know that, it's like, that's, you know, I'd pay that. Seems pretty that's, reasonable. That's, you know, not half bad. Yeah. And, and then they sort of, like, that's, yeah, as you said, like, that's the sort of naive model, like, that kind of fits. But then when they started making more accurate observations of the way that the different, you know, celestial bodies like stars, the moon, sun all moved around, they went, hang on a second, like things aren't exactly as regular as, as that model would suggest. It's like sometimes the stars or the planets do do weird things. Mm -hmm. And one of those weird things that they noticed was that sometimes the direction that the planets move across the sky, say from, from night to night, like if you observe it every you know night for a week, it's going to move. Planets are in different spots mm -hmm. each night. And this is how they, they sort of knew that planets were a little bit different to stars because the stars kind of, or the planets moved relative to the stars. Yeah. And they, right. they, they had to come up with a way of explaining this and the model of having like pinpricks in a, in a sphere. In a static sphere didn't really work. No. And then they come up with all sorts of other models, but one particular um, aspect of what the planets do in the sky that really like needed different explanation. Mm -hmm. And that was sometimes the planets look like they're going backwards. Ah, and and yeah. the reason this is we know now is because some like depending on where to the or the earth and say another planet like Mars yeah. is in its orbit. You know, Earth might sort of like catch up to Mars and then pass it because it's on a, a smaller, faster orbit. Yeah. So at that point, Mars looks like it's moving backwards. Yeah, because we've overtaken. Yeah. 
So they had to come up with a new model. And Ptolemy, who was a second century philosopher, came up with this like really intricate system of you know different circles inside circles, and you know there was different. Each circle was rotating around, and then the planets were rotating around in little spirals. And it, if you look at a picture of what this looks like, it's like mm. one of those spirograph things. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it like all little swirly lines going around in circles. Oh and wow! The cool thing is, it kind of worked. Yeah. Like coming up with this spirograph thing was like, yeah, that that explains it, and they could make predictions of where the planets were going to be in the future oh that's really cool which is like yeah that's that's the the sign of a good which scientific is, yeah model. well that's so interesting and that really you know fits in with the whole debunked science thing the fact that all of these models exist is because you know they do sometimes fit all of the assumptions so who knows the stuff that we believe now what's going to be debunked yeah, in 100, definitely. 200 years down the line, they're well, going to look back it might, at... It might be 200 years. It might be a little bit longer because this model was around for about 1,500 years. Oh, wow. <laughs> before okay. anyone came up with a better one. Yeah. Yeah. So in like 1,500 years, they're going to look back and be like, oh, oh those can't idiots. believe they believed <laughs> that. How embarrassing for them. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so it, it wasn't until Galileo invented the telescope and started looking up at the sky that a new model or new data that didn't fit the old model mm -hmm. started to come to light. And um, some of the things that Galileo saw that, that kind of called into question this geocentric model was, one, that the moon had craters. Uh -huh. And the reason that was, that was like that a big work? deal is because until then, like the general consensus was that space was this weird, like, you know, sort of perfect place. It was where the, the gods lived oh, and, you know, right. it was it was perfect and, you know, didn't free from imperfections like craters. Yeah. And then Galileo right. saw Gosh, these craters, craters and was like, hmm, The moon has pores, imperfections. Yeah. It's not um, been photoshopped, airbrushed <laughs> properly. But then there was other things that he noticed that also called into the question whether the earth was the centre of the universe mm -hmm. because he noticed things revolved around not the earth. He mm. saw that, that Jupiter had moons yep. and went, okay, well, if they're orbiting well, around Jupiter, <laughs> you know, that's, yeah, a bit rude. And also... They didn't get noticed... the memo that Earth was meant to be... <laughs> you know, the centre of everything. Yeah. Also noticed that Venus had phases like the moon. So it went from like a crescent to like a full Venus when it was on the other side of the sun and, mm -hmm. and that sort of thing, which could only happen if Venus was orbiting around the sun. Mm. Because if it was orbiting around the moon, it would have to, I'm sorry, the Earth, it would have to go like, you know, it would never go on the far side of the sun or something like that. So you would never see it yeah. on the far side and fully lit up. It would always be like a crescent Venus. But he noticed that was not the case. Yeah. And then um, around about the same time as Galileo was Johannes Kepler, who came up with better a better system or a better model. And one of the, the things that he kind of decided, you know, better fit the data was that orbits were elliptical. Like they were mm. oval shaped and not perfect circles, which everyone had been thinking up until that time, which again fits in with that like perfection ideal of, of the solar system. You know, it has to be a perfect circle because mm -hmm. anything less is, is not proper. Um, and so Kepler came up with different laws that 
described how the planets moved. And these laws, again, were able to make really accurate predictions. And at the time, they were really, like, really good and could make the best predictions of the way that the planets moved that anyone had come up with at that time. Mm-hmm. And then soon after, uh, Newton came up with the idea of gravity. And mm, the really cool thing from a, a science like a science or methodology perspective is that when Newton came up with gravity and thought, okay, maybe all the planets are being moved around or like held towards the sun by gravity, mm. that he was actually able to come up with Kepler's laws completely mathematically just from, from you know, this law of gravity that he'd come up with. Yeah, wow. So while Kepler did it completely observationally, yeah. Newton did it mathematically and they fit together. Yeah, and, and it could verify. The... And it could verify oh, that, that's cool. that Kepler was on to something. Yeah, nice. But say 400 odd years later, and there were still some things that weren't quite right. Yeah. And one of them was the orbit of Mercury. And there was this thing where the orbit of Mercury, like sort of rotated around the sun. Like Mercury's orbit is elliptical, mm-hmm. but the direction that the like long end of that oval was pointing kind of moves with time. Yeah. And they couldn't really come up with a reason why it moved in the way that it did using Newton's gravity. Okay. And that was explained in 1915 when Einstein came up with the his theory of general relativity. So many big names in this narrative. Yeah, I'm it's, loving it's, it. It's really exciting. What a ride. And so when Einstein came up with, with general relativity and this idea that gravity came from like the curvature of space-time, mm. like space and time were interlinked and it was all had to do with curvature, that they were able to come up with a new model and explain like everything in the solar system, like the orbit of Mercury. Mm -hmm. And that still is like is holding to today is, is general relativity is the best explanation we've got. Mm -hmm. And, um, but we also know that there's, there's still some things going on that aren't quite like, we don't know the whole picture yet. Oh, okay. So you might've heard of dark matter. Yeah. Yeah. So, they look at distant galaxies and the way that the galaxies are rotating doesn't quite fit with the way that, um, like with the amount of matter that they can see in the galaxy. So the sort of consensus these days is that there's dark matter or some matter that has mass, but we can't actually see because it's it's dark and that this is contributing to, um, yeah, it's contributing to the the rotation of these galaxies. Interesting. that's just the theory. Like, there's no... No one's discovered dark matter yet. There's no proof that it actually exists. Yeah, right. So, so far, it's our best guess as to what's going on. Yeah. But, it could but be in 1,500 wrong. years, they're going to be laughing in at us. They're going to be like, dark matter? What <laughs> were they smoking? Uh, <laughs> I mean, who knows? May- or maybe they'll be like, can't believe they hadn't proven it yet. Yeah, dark matter yeah, was yeah. So, so obvious. You know? Who knows? Yeah, well, who there's, knows? there's lots of efforts around the world today trying to discover dark matter and Mm. prove this theory. Mm -hmm. So we'll just have to wait and see what happens. Yeah, how exciting. Isn't that why science is just so great, though? It's it's an ever-evolving narrative. It's like the TV show that has unlimited, you know, it keeps getting renewed season (laughs) after season, twists and turns. Keeps getting better and better. Yep, yep, love it. With that, I'm going to take us into our next song, which is I'm Still Standing by Elton John. (laughs) 
That was I'm Still Standing by Elton John. You're listening to Radio Silence. And today's episode is all about debunked science. So, Kate, what have you got for us today? So, don't know if you guys have heard of um, phrenology. Mm. Is that liver? No. No, kidneys. Kidneys. No. No, 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 no. Heads, brains, come on, it's me. What else uh, am I yeah. going to talk about? <laughs> that was a bit of a spoonerism. Of course, uh, it's the brain. I, I'm, a, I'm nothing if not predictable. So, <laughs> phrenology. I was going to start by asking you guys what you'd heard of phrenology or what you knew about phrenology, uh, but potentially, <laughs> potentially not much, which makes Sorry. this even more exciting. No, because now I get to tell you about it. <laughs> so, phrenology is what we now regard as a pseudoscience. Um, and there was a long kind of interim period in time where we, we also kind of considered it a pseudoscience. But there was a bit of time where not all scientists bought into it, but it was wildly popular and it got mm. used to justify some very not so great things, which we'll kind of get to in a second. So mm. phrenology... Is this about eugenics? There's a little like bit of eugenics be, in there. It, there's yeah, a little I'm bit of eugenics in there. eugenics already. <laughs> yeah. Go on. Yeah, yeah, love the Nazis. So, phrenology <laughs> essentially boils down to using the shape of the head. So we're not talking like we're talking literally oh, yeah. the skull. You might have seen those like busts of people that have it like mapped out yeah. and yeah. different parts of the yeah. head and the the lumps and the shape of the head giving insight into someone's personality. And the mm-hmm. whole premise being the area, each area was associated with with something, and the the lumps on your brain were were your strengths. Um, and because they grow more, the more you use them, obviously, like like a muscles, right? And they also <laughs> believe that, so the skull, they weren't measuring the brain. This is important. They were measuring the skull. And it was very, mm. I'll get to how in a second. It's really scientifically sound. Um, not. So, <laughs> but uh, importantly, they believed that the skull changed shape to fit the brain. So where your brain had a... okay inflated section your skull would also have a lump right and that that's how we were measuring the brain by filling up the skull the opposite yeah, is actually kind like... of true the skull yeah no the, the brain fits inside the skull the squishy thing fits like... inside the hard thing not the other way around would Isn't have that just crazy ignored a lot of tumors <laughs> by the <Yeah>. sounds <laughs> and you know no just... that means you're really funny <laughs> That lump means you're great at math. You don't need to see a doctor. So please continue. Mm. Look, that wasn't even the worst that <laughs> came out of it, to be honest. Um, look, okay. The idea was first developed back in 1796 by German physician Franz Joseph Gall, or Gall. Um, I'm not really sure how to pronounce his name, but... He, and he had, like, not all of his ideas were bad, right? Like, let's not shoot him down too much. <laughs> so he did some important stuff. So kind of, it's important to understand that for a long time, we didn't even realize that the brain was the, the thinking part of the body, yeah. right? They thought it was the stomach, right? They thought it was the stomach at one point. They thought it was the heart at one point. It was kind of the yeah. center of your creativity and intelligence. And, mm-hmm. you know, the more creativity and intelligence you had, the more your heart needed to pump blood to cool you down because obviously being so wildly intelligent created a lot of heat. (laughs) Wild theories, but, you know, similar to what Kai was saying, you know, wild theories that made sense given what they knew at the time. And so Gold's come in and he's gone, well, first of all, 
I think the brain is where the mind is situated, right? And because at the time we kind of thought it was kind of the brain. We thought it was the ventricles inside the brain. So inside our brain, we actually Mm. have three ventricles that hold fluid. And that was kind of where they thought the three different parts of the soul existed for a bit. And anyway, Gaul's come in and he's like, well, actually, I think it's the squishy stuff. Um, And I think, but he thought that it wasn't just one (laughs) organ he thought it was actually like 27 different organs that each one had a different function. So he was also the first one to suggest this idea of localization of function. So different parts of the brain performing different mm. roles, which is not false. Like we actually, localization of function has been proven today, but not in the way that he thought it. So the problem is he kind of took his idea too far and just ran with it and was just like, no, (laughs) I'm correct. So he brought some valuable, valuable insight into neuroscience and where neuroscience went in terms of being the first one to suggest this localization of function, which, you know, we now know different parts of the brain coordinate, you know, different muscles and different parts of the brain are responsible for where we encode memory, where motor circuits are paid out, where reward is um, expressed and, like this is a thing, yeah. but yeah, he he was he was wrong. So his idea was that essentially all of these different faculties, we'll call them. He thought they were different organs, um, and that yeah. they were like muscles. And so the people that used one more, it would get bigger and stronger, and therefore you could see <laughs> that that was you know very prominent. And also the if you used it less, it would shrink. Um, and the problem is, the problem with this is that a lot of this has been used, yes, uh, quite badly over the years to justify things like racism and sexism. Um, so, you know, for example, the phrenologists in the 19th century, they asserted the location of, what did they call it? The organ of amativeness, a.k.a. the faculty that gives rise to sexual feeling. Um, And they found this Mm. location by probing the heads of emotional young young women and the recently widowed. And they... It's all very sexist and it's all very... And they... Good old Gull, he he used to work at um, an insane house, is what they called it back in the day. And he liked to look at the insane and the criminally insane in particular. And he, he found parts of the brain that, you know, if they were stronger, they were like, you're more likely to be a murderer. And this, it formed the basis of the criminal justice system for a while where they were like, Oh, this bloke has, has the murdering part of his brain quite large. Let's, you know, send him to jail for life because he can't be redeemed. Whereas this guy doesn't have the murdering part of the brain. So maybe we can actually let him off because we can, we can empathize with him because it was an act of whatever, because he's not just a callous murderer. Look at the lumps on his head. (sighs) And the way Gaul tested all this was literally running his fingers over people's scalps. Like it was very unscientific. Like he would just feel around. He would get groups of similar people together. So a group of stubborn people for argument's sake finger all their scalps and and base kind of and then feel out patterns and be like oh yes approximately this and approximately that and if someone didn't quite fit into this 
he was just like, oh, well, they're a one-off and they're a special case. And there was it was always explained away when someone didn't fit in. And people loved this stuff. People <laughs> lapped it up because racism is a big one. In America, in particular, this movement took off because both both sides of the the slaver argument were buying into it because the people, the abolitionists who were against slavery, so a lot of them believed in phrenology, but they used it to explain like, look, the African-Americans are a very fragile, you know, they should be protected. They shouldn't be made into slaves because they are still the lesser race as exampled by phrenology, but we should protect them. And then you have the people being like, oh, look, they're obviously a lesser race. It is our duty to enslave them. They need a master. Look at the part of their skull that, you know, it's... And, yeah, the the Nazis did it a lot to identify the Jews and the lesser people in there. It's, uh, It's really upsetting the way that, it was just latched onto because people it's kind of like astrology in a way people like a science that tells them something about themselves or where they feel they can learn Mm. something about themselves. Right. And Mm. it's just, it's not great. It's not great. It's like when you're a kid and you love doing those like quizzes on, in a magazine and it's like you know what disney princess are you and Mm. (laughs) it's like oh my goodness i'm ariel that explains so much right yeah (laughs) except we base our justice system and except a lot of people died as a result of this um and And you know what's wild the the oh was it the British, I think it was the British Phrenological Association, was active until 1967. 1967. Holy smokes. Yep. So they didn't let that go. (laughs) No. So, like, it was kind of, like I said, there were a lot of scientists that were like, "Mm, okay, his method's pretty questionable. Like, he's just trying to detect patterns with his fingers. He was mainly studying family and friends and a bunch of criminals based on... And, you know, relying on some very offensive and dubious stereotypes to create this thing. And, but, you know, there was, there was a lot of, there was kind of, it fell out of fashion and then there was a renewed interest in it in the kind of 20th century due to criminology, anthropology, racism. Yeah. Um, Even though people like um, Paul Broker had found Broker's area of the brain, which is, you know, if that part of the brain is lesioned, it was to do with speech, right? And, um, and so if your broker, if you have broker's aphasia and your broker's area has been lesioned, you can, um, understand speech still, but you can't make it. And so they've gone, okay, so production of speech is localized here, roughly around the ear. Whereas phrenologists had earlier said that the organ of language was near the eye, not near the ear. So it was kind of like, but they were still like, okay, so we maybe got that one area in the wrong spot, but we're still right. Um, but then, okay, so we we essentially, eventually, for the most part, were like, eventually figured out that, you know, this is bullcrap um, down the line. But up until 2018, there had been no actual, like, proper scientific study properly fully debunking this. 
Oh, wow. But in 2018, a bunch of Oxford scientists put this old theory to the test so that they could be like, look, here is an actual published peer-reviewed study using oh MRI. And so essentially... Why did um, it take so long? <laughs> well, because they no one believed it anyway, so they didn't really feel the need to test it so specifically because they'd kind of done lesioning studies kind of like the brokers one and they'd figured all that out a bit. lot more yeah, yeah okay. over in in parts but no one had sat down so what these guys did um so this is actually a quote from the paper where they say although we did not expect to find any significant effects between lifestyle measures and head shape we do believe it is important for scientists to test ideas even unfashionable or offensive ones and not be content dismissing them out of hand this study, therefore, represents the most rigorous evaluation of phrenological claims ever attempted and aims to offer either vindication or the strongest objection yet against phrenology. So what they did, they essentially asked whether local changes in scalp morphology using MRI, whether they correlate correlate with the quote-unquote, faculties that Gaul had described. Um, and then they also, for historical completeness, asked the second probably more fundamental question does scalp morphology actually even you know reflect the brain's underlying morphology yeah. right because you know phrenologists genuinely believed that inspecting this outer surface of the head provided a very indirect measure of the brain shape and that's just okay look spoiler alert we know it doesn't but they did this <laughs> study right they used a bunch of fmri sorry not fmri just mri structural mri scans um for Almost 6,000 people, 5,724 people, wow. which were from a massive brain imaging database. So this database, they were able to acquire this much data of both, you know, MRI, MRI scans of the head. So they could get both the brain tissue and also the skull shape. The scalp, and normally yeah. that's separated and they only look at the brains, but they were like, no, we, we're actually going to keep all of it. And they separated it into two parts of both the scalp shape and the brain shape. And then also as part of this database, they'd taken massive like lifestyle type surveys, um, questionnaires, language and cognitive tests, etc., from the participants. So what they did was they picked 23 measures from the data that best corresponded to the 27 personality factors that phrenology mm -hmm. says exists. Um, and actually, I'm just going to really quickly pull up the table of some of them because it's, it's quite entertaining the so for example the phrenology is aptness to receive an education the modern version is you know age completed full-time education that makes sense um you know phrenology's sure. sense of sounds or musical talents matched with people that had a musical profession um and you know impulse to propagation how many sexual partners have you had they, ex <laughs> they excluded um, the sense of God or religion part of the brain because we didn't really have a... Uh, yeah, but that was a thing that phrenologists believe. You could tell how much sense for God someone had by where, oh, how lumpy my. their skull was. Um, but, you know, there's just some of the things is hilarious, like disposition for colouring. Like, you could... For colouring? Yeah, like colouring in. Delighting in colours. Um, you can tell that from someone's head. There are only three hobbies. 
Um, the one that they thought was associated with murder or carnivorousness or destructiveness. Um, this study used beef intake, how much beef someone eats <laughs> as to how well that correlates to that brain area. Um, yeah, it's, it's truly... I'm just, like, yeah, marvelling at it. But none of that is... The point is... Point is, moral of the story, get to the results. They unsurprisingly found absolutely no statistically significant or meaningful effects when it came to, like, the skull and the correlation between the skull and the personality traits. But even more fundamentally, they demonstrated no correlation between the curvature of the brain and the contours of the skull. Ah, so there you go. You know, that said... You know, phrenology was one of the earliest disciplines to recognise that the brain had different functions. They just missed the mark entirely they on just what got those it functions so were. So disgustingly wrong. And it's really quite upsetting how you know. But oh, regardless, it's so still considered a scientific game changer and don't believe it anymore, but like it played its part. It had its it had its role. But the Moral of the story debunked, is officially debunked as of 2018. Yeah. You can never, you can, you cannot convince me don't, that there's anything to don't, it whatsoever. Don't take a pseudoscience and run with it and design your whole society around it. That's and that's all I'm asking. I feel like we we still kind of do that all the time today. <laughs> yeah, the even if we don't believe the actual head bumpy thing, a lot of the ideas that came from the time that we believed the head bumpy mm. thing still exist. So maybe we should address that as a society. Just maybe we should. Maybe. Um. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, that's me on phrenology. Well, thanks, Kate. Um. <laughs> I think that brings us to the end of this episode of De- debunked science. Um. Next week we are not going to be around. We're taking a little week off because mm-hmm. it is the mid semester break. Doesn't mean that all of our listeners are uni students, but. Some of us are, so we're going to take that break. Um, But we we will see you after the break. Thanks so much for listening. We've been Radio Silence. This is Wait for the Moment by Wolfpack.